0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I was reminded earlier this week of a story from the Scriptures Moses stood alone. He stood alone on Mount Sinai. There he stood in the cool of the morning air, waiting. He had asked God to see his glory, and God had obliged his request, and now Moses stood waiting on Mount Sinai. He had done all the things that that God had asked him to do. He had directed all Israel to stay away from the mountain. He had cut these two new tablets in stone uh, to replace those that he had broken. He had arisen early that morning. He would climbed the mountain, and now he waited. What we know is that God picked up Moses and placed him in the cleft of the rock. And then as he passed by, he covered over the cleft of the rock with his hand so that Moses wouldn't die from seeing the
1: glory of God. But all at once, God removed his hand, and Moses saw the back of God. And we can only imagine what Moses saw that day. But we do know what he heard. God said this, a self-description,
0: the Lord, the Lord That moment was formative, not just for Moses, but for all of Israel. See, for Israel, Moses' talks with God represented the center of their nation. The God who created the world was present with them. He dwelt among them. He lived with them. And the words from God were like bread to them. They were sustenance and sustaining to them. But it's worth noting, in the midst of all of this discussion that Moses has, no one ever saw God.
1: Not Moses, not any of the prophets, no king. No one had ever seen God. See, when we come to John chapter
0: 1, John is making this argument. We saw this in the last few weeks. We've been kind of reiterating what's happened in John chapter 1. In verses 1 through 5, we saw that Jesus was the word from God, that he was with God in the beginning, that he was God, and that he was light and life to men. And then in verses 6 through 8, we saw that John was the witness to the light And then last week, we saw in verses 9 through 13 that that Jesus came into a world that rejected Him, but to all who received Him, He gave the right to become God's children. But this week, we find the pinnacle of our passage in verses 14 through 18, that the Word became flesh, and it
1: dwelt among us. We have seen God in Christ. Here's our big idea this morning. As God's true Son, Jesus uniquely shows
0: us the Father. As God's true Son, Jesus uniquely shows us the Father. We're going to see this in three different truths that we see in the course of our passage. In verses 14 through 15, Jesus is God's only begotten Son. It's kind of a reiteration of a truth that we've seen, but it's repackaged, and we're going to kind of see this uniquely here. And then in verse 16 and 17, that Jesus is useful as the conveyor of grace and truth. And we'll unpack that a little bit. And then finally, in verse 18, Jesus is the sole revealer of God the Father. See, ultimately, we have a structure that's going to happen. And I want to highlight what's happening in this passage. If you go ahead and flip to the next slide there, Anthony. See, we see this phrase in verse 14 that says that uh, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only father from God, full of grace and truth. And what John does is he grabs both of those ideas and talks about them in different ways. And verse 15, we're going to see John the baptist testimony to the glory of the only son from the father and then we're going to change hands and we're going to look at verse 16 and 17 that he's full of grace and truth and what that means then we're going to come back in verse 18 and talk about this glory that jesus has as from the father that's kind of our structure for this morning. We want to dive right in. I know I forgot to read the scripture passage. I know I forgot that. I, I've forgotten it, but we'll read it now. Uh, John chapter one, verses fourteen through eighteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's jump in this morning with our first point. Jesus is unique as God's only begotten Son. When we were reading through verses 14 and 15, the thing stood out first in verse 14. The Word became flesh and lived among us. See, John tells us that, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt in our midst. In fact, the word there is the word skeneo; It means dwelt, or it's translated here as dwelt, but it, it really refers to the tabernacle of Exodus. Whenever God wanted to speak to Moses in the book of Exodus, the, the pillar of cloud would descend upon the tent of meeting, and Moses would know to go to the door of the tent of meeting, and he would talk with God. Moses would enter into this tabernacle and speak with God. And Exodus 33, it describes it like a, a man speaks with his friend face to face. See, Jesus was, as John is saying, Jesus is the new tabernacle where men meet with god in taking on flesh jesus became this nexus between divinity and humanity and by jesus's birth the world could now meet with god jesus took on flesh and he became the skeneo, the tabernacle that we met with god through and john goes on in verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory our author John saw the glory of Jesus. In fact, what's going to happen is that same term is going to be used in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11. After Jesus turns water into wine, John's going to summarize it this way in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and what? Manifested his glory. In fact, the first 11 chapters are going to show us seven different signs where Jesus is manifesting his glory. But look at how John describes the glory of Jesus. He tells us two specific things about this glory that we want to tune into, that we want to turn our attention to. Verse 14 says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Uh, Just after describing us as God's children, John now describes Jesus as God's children. Only son. In fact, the term that's used here is this monogenes. that should be familiar to us. It's John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his only begotten son. If we were to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, it's uh, the description of Jacob as Abraham's only son. See, John is telling us about Jesus' uniqueness in relation to the Father. Yes, we are children of God, but we are not the Son of God. We are not the Son of God who bears unique relationship to the Father. In fact, John, even in John chapter 1, is using two different terms. We are children, we're technon, whereas Jesus is huios, he's son. Jesus possesses then a particular glory as God's only Son. He alone has dwelt with God from the beginning. He alone has known God. He alone is appointed by God to redeem mankind. So Jesus brings this unique glory to the earth to be witnessed by mankind. That's not the only thing that reveals his glory. He goes on to say that Jesus is full of grace and truth. You know, in Exodus 34, God passes before Moses and he proclaims his name, right? That's 34, 6, and 7. We just read, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, or as we might know them, grace and truth. Don Carson highlights the similarity that steadfast love would be our modern understanding of grace, faithfulness would be truth. What does it mean that Jesus is full of grace and truth? It's like you pick up a bottle of ketchup, right? And you hope that inside the bottle of ketchup, it's all ketchup. There's nothing else inside there, right? Some dead bug or or something else. You're never going to open a bottle of ketchup the same way, right? But inside this bottle of ketchup, there should be nothing that's non-ketchup, right? Similar, there's no part of Jesus that is non-grace or untruth. The individual moments of Jesus's life show these character characteristics to be true of Jesus, and so Jesus is described as full of grace. But think about the moments of his life that are particularly gracious. When Jesus has these sharp conversations, like in John chapter eight, where he's saying that you are of your father, the devil, he's still being gracious. In John chapter 11, when his disciples are kind of grumbling about having to go back to Judea after people just tried to kill Jesus, Jesus is gracious. In John 13, Judas, or Jesus washes Judas's feet. It's an expression of his grace. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where someone compliments you in a way that wasn't true. A little while ago, someone told me that I was a very patient person. And in my mind, I'm thinking of the examples, of all of the examples, of my impatience. I may have been patient in that moment around that person, but I should not have been characterized by the term patience, because I can think of countless examples of me being impatient. See, we never get the sense that Jesus is anything less than perfectly gracious. In every moment, expressing this grace from God. But also, he's full of truth. See, as the word from God, Jesus embodies truth. Separating Jesus from truth is like separating orange juice from oranges. The two things are bound together in an inseparable way. You cannot have orange juice without first having oranges. One thing is derivative from the other. In the same way, we cannot have truth without a perfectly consistent and morally good God. If, if truth is the understanding of things as they are, then the creator of all things, who sustains all things and knows all things, is both the embodiment and the arbiter of truth. Jesus is full of truth. And there was never any bit of untruth in him. Jesus never spoke lies. He never spoke half-truths. He never hid the truth intentionally. He always spoke truthfully and himself embodied what it was to be truthful. In fact, Jesus will later describe himself in John 14 as the way, the truth, and the life. And I think this is why the truth is so important to Jesus. In that passage we mentioned in John chapter 8, Jesus tells us that truth will set us free. And as the sons of Satan, those Pharisees and religious leaders who rejected him, were following the father of lies, that is, Satan. See, Jesus then presents himself as the truth that sets free. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we don't just take John's word for it here. What John does is he corroborates his statement about Jesus's pre-existence with a quotation from John the Baptist in verse 15. Now, this does two things. First, it prepares us to hear more from John the Baptist later on in verses 19 through 32. But secondly, it serves John's argument here that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus was preexistent. Look at what he says in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. You see, this seems like a strange thing to add here, doesn't it? This, this odd little quotation from John the Baptist. It seems like some ill-timed John the Baptist loved from our author. But truth be told, it serves these two purposes, and it highlights the preexistence of Jesus. For John the Baptist to say that Jesus was first, even though John the Baptist was older, is a significant statement about Jesus' preexistence. John is highlighting that he's greater because he was before him. highlights not just that Jesus was there first, but Jesus is authoritative. It's not just John's idea. This is John the Baptist corroborating this, and John corroborating this, and Jesus himself, who will speak this later see, the upshot of these first two verses is that Jesus is unique as God's Son. No one else can claim this relationship with the Father. Jesus alone can uh, lay claim to this title of Son of God. But also, Jesus alone shows us His glory. In coming and tabernacling among us, Jesus shows what that glory is. But there's also another expression of Jesus' glory. It's not just that, that Jesus was full of glory as the only Son from the Father. What verse 14 told us is that he's also full of grace and truth. And what we're going to see in verses 16 and 17 is kind of an unpacking of what it is to be full of grace and truth. See, the second truth that we come to is that Jesus is useful as a conveyor of grace and truth. Now, I, I, this term is kind of tra- crass, right? That we talk about Jesus being useful, but what we're hitting at is that Jesus has this character of one who is like God. He's from God. He is deity himself, and then he relates to us in grace and truth. And so Jesus has this quality of being God's son, and he has this characteristic of being graceful and truthful. Look what he says in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth
1: came through Jesus Christ. See, from Jesus' fullness that he's described in verse 14,
0: if you and I are in Christ, we've received grace upon grace. Imagine a, a cup that is so full that it's overflowing to other cups. Maybe you've been at a, a wedding or a party, and they have one of those chocolate fountains that's just constantly overflowing, or a cheese fountain. These are the kind of things that my mind thinks on a lot. There's nothing more beautiful than overflowing chocolate, right? Well, Jesus is overflowing, so full of grace and truth, he's overflowing into others. Jesus is described as full of grace of truth, and now his fullness is spilling over to us so that we've received grace upon grace. This language is interesting here. When he talks about grace upon grace, it actually reads grace for grace or grace instead of grace. It's as if to say we're substituting some former grace from God with some new grace from God. And the best way to illustrate this is just actually to press forward into verse 17, because I think verse 17 unpacks exactly what this means. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ Moses gave a kind of grace in the law right that the law came with a kind of graciousness to it and we shouldn't understand that John's statement here is meant to denigrate or dismiss what God had given in the law the law of Moses had this particular purpose and as we read uh, John or Paul excuse me Paul was one of the authors in the New Testament that spoke about law and grace the most and provided the best clarity between those two things. But his statement in Galatians 3 is that the law's purpose was like a tutor to lead us to Christ, that if we were given the law, we were to sense our sinfulness and then turn to Jesus in repentance.
1: The law was to show us that the sting of our sinfulness would drive us to
0: the antidote in Christ. What John's telling us here is that a better grace came in Christ. Look at verse 17. He says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The relationship then between law and grace is such that law is grace and grace and Christ is grace. But this grace that Jesus shows us is over and above that which is given to us in the law.
1: The law of Moses was just a bit of grace. The fullness of God's grace was to be shown in Jesus.
0: This morning, the grace revealed in Jesus is to be preferred to the limited revelation of of God given in the law. We think about the law. We we think about the images of the law. The law is summarized at Exodus 19, where the people of God tremble at at God's massive glory. They see God's the, the thunder and the cloud and God descending upon Mount Sinai, and they tremble in fear. God was to be feared and to be revered, and so therefore you were to perform the law even though you could not, as Paul says later on. But now God's grace has been fully disclosed to us in Christ. And now we have a fuller comprehension and appreciation for God's character. God told us he was gracious at Mount Sinai, right? He said he he forgives transgression and iniquity and sin, that he keeps steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands, but he showed us his grace in its most vivid display at Calvary in Jesus Christ. The things that God told us with His mouth
1: in the law, He showed us in the flesh in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is God's only begotten Son, and Jesus is the conveyor
0: of grace and truth. And it leads us to this reflection in verse 18, that Jesus is the sole revealer of God the Father. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Again, John invites us back to Exodus 34. No one has ever seen God. Moses was the the closest we got And there's no other prophet or person that has seen the glory of God. And even when Moses saw the back of God, he was hidden from God's glory so that he might not die in the presence of God. In fact, we have this long list of people who have violated the presence of God in their sinfulness. There's Nadab and Abihu who offer strange fire in Leviticus 10, and the presence of God breaks out from the altar and consumes them. There's Uzziah, King Uzziah, who tried to offer incense before God and was struck with leprosy for overstepping his bounds and coming into the presence of God without warrants. But notice how John holds out hope for us here. Verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has revealed the Father to us. It's it's not just a coincidence that later on in John 14, when Jesus is talking about going away, Philip says... Hey, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus rebukes Philip and says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of his being. And John is affirming here, if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God the Father. They're inseparably linked. The glory of what John is unpacking here is that the word that existed with God and was God is now here in our midst. He's not somewhere else aloof and out there. He's right here
1: with us. We have seen God in Christ. That's the glory of Jesus. You know, it's a unique Beautiful thing
0: on Christmas Day to be able to unpack the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. To say there's no one else like Him on the earth. There's no one else who's uh, similar to Him. He is unique in His standing with the Father. it's because of that we reflect on this this morning. We say that Jesus alone can reunite the Father with men. Jesus alone can reunite the Father with men. There is no other
1: reconciler for God and mankind. Let's just stop and ask this question,
0: because I think it's evident in this text. John says it in verse 18, no one has
1: ever seen God. Why can't men see God? Why? Hidden in the text in Exodus 33, God says this to Moses. He says, no one can see God and live. Our
0: sin in God's presence would inevitably lead to our immediate death. Now, there's exceptions. There's Jacob wrestling with a pre-incarnate Christ. There's Isaiah in visions, or, or John in visions in Revelation, seeing the glory of God in a vision, not in real
1: life. But on the whole, our sinfulness cannot come into the Father's presence.
0: Maybe you've seen this movie. It might even be on TV today. I don't know. But Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm dating myself as an 80s and 90s kid, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison Ford wants to steal the Ark of the Covenant because the Nazis want to use God's presence as a weapon, right? Those are good times. Only in the 80s and 90s could you have a a movie that trafficked in those themes, right? But Indiana Jones was the, the one who could navigate the intricacies of God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant. He's the one who knew how. Those Nazis, because they were evil, they they did what was wrong. They couldn't have the Ark of God in their midst. But Harrison Ford was righteous enough to kind of work through this.
1: See, the truth this morning is, Jesus alone could touch the Ark of God, the Ark of Covenant, and live. Jesus
0: alone could enter into the holies of Hol- Holy of Holies without an animal's blood. Jesus alone could stand in the cleft of the rock and look God in
1: the face. Why? Because Jesus alone is righteous as God's true Son. Jesus alone lived
0: for 33 years without sin flawlessly, laying down his life as sacrifice for sinners like you and I. So Jesus is the dispenser of divine grace. He's the Word of God who took on flesh, and even as he's fully God, he is also fully man. As a man, he knew all of our temptation. He became our faithful high priest. He was tested in every way, yet was righteous. And as God, he is perfect in this righteousness, impeccable in his nature, absolutely beyond even the slightest reproach. And if these two things are true that Jesus is fully God, fully man, he alone stands uniquely to bear our sins at the cross. He alone stands in heaven and on earth. He alone knows what it is to stand in the holiness of God's throne room and amidst the defilement of the earth. Jesus alone can advocate before the Father's throne
1: on our behalf. See, Christian, on this Christmas Day, Jesus is irreplaceable. There's
0: no one who can do what Jesus has done and is doing this very moment. There's no one who can advocate for you in heaven.
1: thinking this morning. There are men of notable skill and capability. Even in our
0: own congregation, I'm amazed sometimes at the capabilities of what some of us are able to accomplish. But as we look worldwide, there there are politicians that will change the law. There are world leaders who will change society. There are teachers and, and others who will change minds and thoughts. But There is only one God, Jesus Christ, who will change your status in heaven. This morning what happens is we tend to make Jesus either less human or less God than what he really is. By making him less human, he can't be with us in our temptation. And by making him less God, he can't advocate before God's throne. By changing the person of Jesus, we actually
1: end up with neither an advocate nor a a friend. I don't know if you do this, but I find myself leaning on law to make me right with
0: God. We try to earn our standing with, with God by doing good things. We try to kind of uh, prove ourselves through uh, performing righteous actions. We try to do all of the things that uh, we think might kind of endear us to others and to God. We try to earn our standing through our righteous action. John's telling us very specifically here that the law was a specific grace from God, but that the law was designed to lead us to the fullness of grace and truth in Christ. But we do this funny thing. We try to replace Jesus with law. Maybe you're here this morning. You've been a Christian. You've been 20, 30, 40 years in Christ. And yet you continually come back to this legalistic earning of righteousness before God's throne. We rely on our own righteousness in a multitude of ways. It's my righteousness that makes me wallow in shame and guilt for days after confessing sins that Jesus has already forgiven. You ever do that? You ever find yourself just saying, I, I, I have to earn my, my forgiveness by wallowing in guilt. And that's a forgetting of God's grace. It's my righteousness that demands that I put up a front of being capable and put together for others. I have to make myself look like I'm capable and righteous before the eyeballs of other people. You ever do that? Find yourself trying to earn standing and favor with men, and in so doing, replacing the grace of Jesus by not being honest about who you are? It's kind of this Instagram Christianity where everything's just these beautiful meals and good deeds that you've done in front of others, but you never put the bad moments on Instagram, do you? We should have like a truthful Instagram post place, right, where we just place the places where we melt down in traffic and yelling at our neighbors or whatever else, yelling at our kids. It's my righteousness that gets frustrated with the lack of progress and holiness, even as God has granted what change I may have made. You ever feel like this? You you get frustrated saying, I thought I would be further along in my walk with Christ now. I thought I would be more mature in Christ. I thought I would be uh, better at this. And yet you fail to see the grace that God has given and the life change he has brought. See, so often we replace God's grace in Christ with law. This morning, what we celebrate in Christmas, that there is no Savior but Christ. See, the best thing you and I can do today is to celebrate Christmas with rich thanksgiving, rather than trying to earn our standing through leveraging law and righteousness that we kind of drum up from within ourselves, what we need is just the righteousness of Jesus, full of grace and truth. We need to turn to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, show me grace, show me truth, so that I can live out
1: your way in your world. I wonder if we might be those who live in this way. I want to pray to that end. I want to pray that
0: the Lord makes us those who thirst for the righteousness of Christ, who put off any kind of fronting of of self-righteousness, but instead turn in faith to Jesus to provide the righteousness and the
1: grace that He's given us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, strip strip us of our self-righteousness. Take this thing that you meant as good, the law. Take it from us because we try to manipulate it. Allow us instead to not turn to my good works, but instead to turn to your Son. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us glory. You've shown us glory in your only Son. You've shown us glory in his grace and truth. Help us to cling to him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.